All right, the um, uh, attendance and any handouts are over yonder there. The uh, handout is kind of thick, so if we want to, we don't have to get through it today. Pull Pastor Bruzek. That is the reading. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't switched between readings since uh, a month ago or so. But uh, the little discussion guide is over on the counter there. I have no idea. Could be men's Bible study. Oh, I, yes, that's right. Men's Bible study is doing a little unit on... Um, no, like the historicity of like the Bible. Yeah. Like, where does it come from? Who wrote it? How did we get our Bible that we have today? Yeah. So I have no idea what it says, though. I got my Bible from the Internet. That's kind of where we get our Bibles from. Um, Carol has an announcement. Go ahead. Do you want the microphone, Carol? Yeah, I'm tired. Yep. <laughs> or though, do I need the microphone? Let's just, you know, why not? That way it goes on the internet. Oh, fun. Along with the Bible? Absolutely. Oh, that was somebody's phone, not feedback. Um, Christmas sharing announcements. Let me see. First of all, there are a few special requests that left that we'd like to fulfill. I just put the list up there. There's not many of them. Um, mostly gas cards, gift cards, and three sewing machines. Sewing machines. Right. Sewing machines. Awesome. <laughs> so if anybody wants to be generous and give somebody a new workable, but you know, basic sewing machine, that'd be great. But the other is... Um, Next Tuesday morning, we collect all the donations from the schools that we work with, which are Emerson, Lowell, and Franklin. Right now, I have one person signed up to help. It's really easy work. Uh, you, you, op- you, the, okay, now I have two. Okay. It's, it's easy work because we hold the doors for the kids that load up the, uh, the fancy trailer that we have parked in the other parking lot known as the alert trailer. Back 40. The back 40. But uh, as I say, we need five or six total would be great. And um, there's a couple guys that will be helping our driver with the, the heavier lifting. So we need that. Uh, we also need some more workers next week. And especially anybody that's thinking of working the event, we always get a good turnout for Friday night. Saturday is really low because people have a lot of other stuff going on. If it's possible for you to work both nights or, you know, look, you haven't worked before and come Saturday, that's a good way to break into working the event because it's a little more relaxed than Friday night. As much fun, but it's a little more relaxed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Pastor Nelson gets to have the fun of coordinating the cleanup afterwards <laughs> that the confirmation kids do so you don't have to get involved at all. You're welcome. But yeah, you're welcome to come if you want. But no, that's and that's that's about it. Uh, things are going very well, and I keep reminding myself that this is a congregation that doesn't sign up, although I don't want to publicize that. Uh, such as last night, I think there were maybe two people that said they were coming to help, and we almost had more people than we needed. So you know. I was thinking of that this morning, and I thought I'd only talk for two minutes during prayers, is one of the blessings for me of doing this 
is I get to see the little tiny things that God does. Just ordinary, everyday things that you don't even think about, except when you're in the middle of something, whether it's a working catastrophe and you need something and you don't know how you're going to get it, and all of a sudden it's there, to everything else in life. And I try to remember that through the rest of the year, of all these little things that the, the care and the love of our God. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there, there has to be a connection with Katharina Regina von Greifenberg and Martin Luther, but not to get too philosophical, but there is there was a debate amongst theologians during the Reformation period where um, related to joy and like pleasure and how you still see it today where you, the, the understanding is your highest joys in God and, and then, okay, and not in earthly things. Well, Luther says that's wrong. No, no absolutely not. Because earthly things are gifts of God. So, to put those two against each other is to actually hate God. So, this is why you have a lot of, like, earthiness in a lot of Martin Luther's writings. And so, what Carol just described, she's a Lutheran, where you can be enraptured by these small things that seem to be inconsequential in the grander scheme of life, but yet... She sees God's handiwork. Um, it's really important for us to, to really realize is that that is a that was a thank you Martin Luther kind of thing because you still have a there's kind of like Puritanism fundamentalism where like only good things are kind of cloaked in kind of this Christianese understanding of things versus like. Uh, what we when we talk about the mandate Thursday nights with the men, um, many wanted to have a, like a Bible study, and Pastor Brzezik were and I were like, well, happy to have a Bible study, but you know, we need to have time to like figure it out and time to sleep. So, how about we just drink a beer, and talk. And because um, rejoicing in the, the drink is rejoicing in God's good gifts. And we say that kind of like silly, you know, being silly. But underpinning that is very true. It's like you're rejoicing in God, my Savior, which, of course, is what we're going to talk about today, the Magnificat. So, yeah. So, you know, when we see these little things that happen with God uh, and we say, we kind of highlight them, we also have to recognize all the other times we've missed God. Actually, Emily, so I can say that in prayers today. Let's give thanks for all the times we make it to church safely for protection. And That's a great prayer request. I really appreciated that because it reminds us of all, like, just how much God is in our life. Anyways, we probably won't talk about that today. Joy and maybe we will, I don't know. Okay, so we have two more weeks. I don't think we're scheduled to be on the 20th. And right now, I'm going to say we're not going to go on the 20th. So this week and next week. I know next week is Christmas sharing. But please, we'll finish up. Okay. All right, so um, the Bible reading that Katharina Regina von Greifenberg has meditated on is kind of known as the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God my Savior. 
Um, so she spends a long time, and within this meditation, she speaks a lot about Mary, which makes sense because Mary's the one who's saying these words. And in this, um, for some, you know, kind of Lutherans, especially in the LCMS, you know, she speaks very highly of Mary in a very different kind of way than what some of us have been raised, you know, to kind of just believe in how we talk about Mary. So um, I think it's important to kind of put her in perspective on multiple levels. So first is just a, I, the medieval understanding of Mary is a unique thing. So kind of Mary, the dogma of Mary, changed quite a bit in the Middle Ages. Mary became kind of a mother of mercy, and Jesus became a, like a like a judge, like a scary judge. And because of that, th- those images, well, if Jesus is a scary judge, well, who am I going to turn to with my problems? Well, Mary was. So that's where her kind of this understanding of the intercessory position of Mary kind of comes about. And then based off of that, you have her um, role as the one who gives, you know, flesh to Jesus. And that flesh being connected, she and her work of obedience, um, she turns into kind of a co-redemptrix, kind of co-redeemer. Now, she merited this role, not only the mother of God, but also kind of this role. Again, this is medieval understanding. Um, and well, how did she merit? How did she become worthy to become the mother of God? Well, through her chastity, her virginity, her humility, and her kind of faith, her fiat, well, and then her fiat, let it be. And through that, then, she gains these certain titles. Two of the more famous ones that are kind of particular to us today is the Queen of Heaven and Mother of Mercy. Anyway, so that's all in the background as Luther comes along. There's other things to say about this, too. But these are really kind of uniquely medieval understanding of Mary. It's not early church understanding of Mary. These are kind of developments. Um, The mother of God title, in Greek it's called the Theotokos, comes up through the church councils, like in 431 A.D. in Ephesus, and then Chalcedon in 451. Um, And then that's where you also get the um, Semper Virgo, ever virgin. So anyways, so there there are, uh, these are important things because as Lutherans, and Martin Luther especially, you know, we confess those church councils to be authoritative in our lives, too. Okay. Donna. Oh, and they also believe uh, that he, she's holy. Right? And the church still does, right? Well, what do you mean holy? Because saints are holy. You're holy. Without sin. Without sin, yeah. Now that, yep, yeah, we'll, we'll actually learn a little bit about that today because Martin Luther believed the same thing. But there is a lot of plethora of beliefs about this, even within Roman Catholicism. It wasn't until the 1950s that that was dogmatized in the Roman Catholic Church, the Immaculate Conception of Mary as the dogma of her sinlessness. Even the church, the, the church doctor, Thomas Aquinas, disagrees with official church doctrine. Yeah, so this is something where it's very important for us to not anathemize the Roman Catholics about this Immaculate Conception because a lot of the church history doesn't actually agree with the 1951 declaration of the Pope. And somebody very important like Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, it's very interesting. Krista. Um, uh, Pope John, no? he, was, he was very... Um... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, this is very part... Yeah, so this is important for us, though, is to understand is that the medieval understanding that Luther was reforming is not the same as today. And that's very important because I think a lot of us kind of think 
Like for instance, we'll, we'll actually, I'll, sh I'll show you something that's very unique. Um, if you want to turn the page, actually, we'll come back to the front page. Um, there's a picture here of a Lutheran church in Nuremberg, the Frauenkirche. Now, this is unusual on a multiple levels. Um, now, it's kind of hard to see because the picture isn't great. Been a professional photographer. Public access photo. So, you know, I did find one where I had to cite it, but it allowed me to use it for educational purposes. This one is free. Um, this is a Lutheran church. Now, there's two reasons why this is kind of unique. Not unique in the fundamental sense, but unique to us. Can you see what's... Okay, so first of all, that's an altar panel. That's very common in those days, and there's a lot of famous Lutheran altar panels. In fact, our, 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 uh, the chapel at the Synodical, Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Synodical uh, office building. It's not, I don't know what you want, headquarters. Um, has a replica of the church panels that are from the St. Mary's in Wittenberg. So, a lot of churches don't have it because, frankly, it's expensive. You can't have, actually have a real artist do it. Okay. Anyways, so that's not, that's not necessarily the most unusual thing about this. The most unusual thing, or the unique to us, is what's above it. It's Mary. Now, this was made, the first part of it was made in 1440. Okay, Middle Ages. Nothing major. But it was renovated in 1522. Now, if you know your 500th year anniversary, that's after the Reformation. And Nuremberg, after Nuremberg accepted the Reformation. Now, Nuremberg is a very complicated city in Germany. Krista probably knows about this, history-wise. It's it's it, it was a free city. So they had a lot of kind of independence versus the Holy Roman, you know, in relationship to the Holy Roman Empire. However, they kept very good relationships with the Holy Roman Empire. Why would they want to keep good relationship with the Holy Roman Empire? Two reasons, mainly. They don't want to get, they don't want to have any war with them, and then also, uh, it, it behooves them financially. So, you got to keep that in mind. However. If this was just the only church in this area, that would be one thing. But there are lots of churches in this area that kept their Marian images. Now, that's kind of unique to us. Because there's plenty of other places that took them down. But there are lots of Lutheran churches in Germany that kept them. But what's, what's actually more unique about this in relationship to our Lutheran faith it's the fact that there's something missing. And after the Reformation, once the Reformation came into effect in these lands, in German lands, German Lutheran lands, most of the statues were taken away from the altar. And they were replaced with something. In fact, this became a designation of Lutheranism that people could walk in and tell the difference between a Roman Catholic church and a Lutheran church by this thing. Anyone want to take a guess? Not just a cross, but a crucifix. <laughs> so this goes back to Donna's comment. Now today, in the Roman Catholic church, what does every church have to have? A crucifix. <laughs> um... In fact, I was at this Catholic retreat center for my classes on the theology of the body, and it wasn't a crucifix. And I can't tell you the scandal that caused people. <laughs> it's the first thing they know is, where's the crucifix? Um, so, um, so this is interesting. In the time after the Reformation, all the way up even into the 17th century, 18th century, you could tell a Lutheran church because it had a crucifix on the altar. It didn't have any, like, you know, the church was St. John. It didn't have any statue of St. John. I mean, there's a very famous statue of St. Teresa of Avalon. Uh, I don't know, you always kind of see it as a work of art, but it's actually above the altar. It's, it's actually an altar, part of the altar piece. Um, 
So this is something that is, we would say, how do I know it's a Roman Catholic church? Well, because it has a crucifix. But that actually wouldn't work in the late 16th and 17th century. It'd be the opposite. <laughs> um, in fact, when certain lands came from Lutheran rulers and switched over to Roman Catholic rulers, some of the Roman Catholic rulers would actually go into the Lutheran churches and take their crucifixes and altars and put them in the Roman Catholic church, usually the prince, like the castle church where the prince would um, go to church because Lutherans had this. So, anyways, so this is important as, we, as I kind of talk about Mary, is we don't want to think about, we kind of want to keep it in perspective. So, yeah, that's, I mean, so thanks for bringing that up. Um, and, and some of the more modern understanding of Mary the, is actually only like 150, 170 years old about Roman Catholicism. So, because the assumption of Mary was declared dogma in the 1850s, I can't remember what that was. I can't remember when that was exactly. Or it was the 19th century. Okay, Donna. Did they, did they also keep um, the Lutheran Church? Did they had a cruci- or the Catholic Church had a crucifix? But did they also keep the statue of Mary? Well, a lot of Lutheran churches did. That's that's why the pictures are right there. Yeah. Yeah. No. So this is actually. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this then. Because Mary's uh, Lutheran's Luther's Luther's understanding of Mary is really important for us. Because as you know, as he comes into the Middle Age, he comes from the Middle Ages. There's a Reformation happening, and there's things that need to be changed. So I listed basically four things about Mary that needed to be changed. Okay, so those are the things um, that Luther comes into and says, "Wait a second, this isn't right." So Mary, as a mediator, because of her merit, was discarded by Luther because it took the focus off of Jesus. And so this is a line of thinking for Luther is that Mary, anything about Mary is really something about Jesus. That's really important. Okay. So Mary deserves uh, Christians' respect and honor, but should not, uh, should not call upon her because of her merit or close connection to Christ based on her motherhood. That was something too. Where he, well, of course, Jesus is going to listen to Mary because he's her, that's, that's his mother, and everyone listens to their mother. Okay, well, Luther says, no, that, that's not quite the, the case. Because um, Christ does not do her bidding because she's his mother. If so, Luther would then, it says that that would make her into an idol, because then that would put Mary above Christ. Luther then says, any adoration of Mary based on herself is an, is an insult to her. There's a great quote from Luther's discussion of the Magnificat, the thing that we're reading with Greifenberg, where he puts words in her mouth, just like Greifenberg, and says, basically, I'm, I'm offended by, by you all who are giving all these praises to me for me and not for Christ. So Luther says, Mary believes Christ was the author of grace and mercy and would be ashamed if people looked only to her. Uh, it's, it's a nice little, little perspective. Luther also criticized the belief uh, Mary somehow merited her role as the mother of God. For Luther, becoming the mother of God is very, a, a very special thing. It's an amazing thing, but it's always based on God's grace. And so... Mary, because she was the mother of God, does deserve honor and, and actually praise. But not because of her, but because of what has happened to her. So she provides a source of joy and also provides an example of the kind of like, whoa, if God did this for her, God can do this for anybody. And that, that's important. So in, um, so in discussing the Magnificat, Luther says her humility means she considered herself unworthy of this great blessing. And that she also comes from a, a poor family. And you see that in Greifenberg, when Greifenberg calls Mary wretched. It's kind of harsh. Ooh, man. 
but um, it's not so much about her sinfulness as much as her place in life. All right, so then Luther also stressed the significance of Mary's virginity because that's part of our creed. Um, but that doesn't mean that actually earns any special place for her. All right, then one of the interesting things about Luther, and it really influences even our Bible translations today, is how he translates from the Latin Vulgate, I'm sorry, uh, in contrast to the Latin, Latin Vulgate, his German translation of the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, the Ave Maria. He takes it away from Hail Mary, full of grace, and says, Hail Mary, O gracious one, or blessed one, or favored one. Now, if you know the Advent hymn, the angel came. Does anyone know how that the verses end? Most highly favored lady. That's based off Luther's translation, that phrase. Because it, it puts her in the passive position. And he does that because he says that's more, more true to the Greek. And then also it avoids all this nonsense about her being full of grace. And she's full of grace. Then she can hand out grace to others. Like she can dole it out. Krista. It's, it's, uh, it's quite a, a little bit different. Um, but does uh, Mary has children later on? Okay, well, let's, we'll get to that. Uh, so Luther warned against using Ave Maria as a prayer, but he actually says it's a song of praise. And even so, I didn't put any of this in here, but like he'll actually have a song. He, like, he has a, like, a, like, this is the proper way of praising Mary. And you're always like, well, we don't, we don't talk that way anymore. So anyway, so he's, he's, really, he's really kind of putting this in perspective. Um, uh, but because the Hail Mary is just so like, misused, he's like, just don't do it anymore. Just mis- don't use it. So that's one of those things where like, something that's like, kind of good, it's been so misused and it's so confusing for people, you should just not use it anymore. And that, that actually goes to then to the Nuremberg situation. Because in Nuremberg, perhaps it wasn't misused. It was, and it was easily put back into perspective. And that's probably the case. Because there's other towns and cities where images of Mary, like statues or, or you know, um, any kind of artwork, was removed. Um, but in other towns, it was just kind of kept and just reinterpreted according to Luther's, uh, according to the Reformation emphasis. So then, um, okay, so Mary, is, so now let's talk about more of the positive things. So, so Luther really sees Mary as, a, as a, the chief example of faith, you know, kind of like Abraham. Like she's the one, so, you know, he, Luther really talks about like, She's a virgin, but she's pregnant. How can that happen? But she believes. Wow, she's got amazing faith. She's a slowly person, but the angel visits her. Wow, that's, I mean, so Mary's an example of faith, meaning because she agree, keeps agreeing with what's happening to her. She doesn't say, no, no, I'm a sinner, or no, 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 no. She's like, whoa. So, and that really is important for us because in our, kind of our dogmatic book of beliefs, the Book of Concord, uh, Article 22 in the Augsburg Confession concerns saints, and Mary obviously plays a prominent role. And that um, saints are very important for us for examples of faith. They show us examples of faith, how to... And for, for Luther, actually, one of the interesting things, one of the kind of people, he says, these group of people really need to look to Mary. And he, he says, kings and princesses and rulers... So fascinating. Now, he does this for a couple of reasons. One is because she's a, the, the chief example of faith for anybody, men, women. But also, too, because he's playing off of this notion of her being the queen of heaven. So he's basically taken her off this pedestal based on her merit and brought her down here 
not because she's uh, she's worthy of this, but just to demonstrate how amazing God's grace is. And then he says, you rulers need to go further down underneath and look up to her example. So it's a really, really great argument to put um, those who think they are worthy of what they have in life into place. It's based all on God's grace. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. All right, next then, um, but she teaches the theological virtues, faith, humility, and love. Um, Luther actually calls her a doctor of the church. And I believe the first preacher. I think it was. So the whole point, though, is that she is this example, not only example of faith, but she actually has things to teach through her words, the, the Magnificat especially. And then, of course, she, yeah, she's a model of certain things, model of obedience to authority, even though she didn't have to go to Bethlehem. She did. Uh, he says that a lot. And then, then related to women specifically, she kind of embodies these virtues of modesty and propriety, which, yeah, some of the things he says, I don't, you know, they, they are um, pretty culturally specific, let's put it that way. So, anyways, but th- those are very positive things for Luther. And then, and then, but the thing is, though, and this goes now then to what Christa said, Luther rejected many of the medieval titles of Mary, Queen of Heaven, Mother of Mercy. However, he accepted other Marian doctrines, perpetual virginity, the Immaculate Conception, even her sinlessness at the time of Jesus' birth. Now, just because Luther accepts it doesn't mean anything. In fact, as we already said, most of the church, there was a lot of discussion about this, and it wasn't until 1950 that some of these things were decided. I mean, in terms of the Roman Catholic Church. So let's talk a little bit about the per- perpetual virginity. Luther basically said, just said, you know, there's not, this isn't a good argument to, to give it up. You know, so Luther's very, you know, he's, he's, he's basically says if there's not an explicit uh, scripture reference, then we'll just, we'll just take, we'll take what's been handed down to us according to tradition. And he understands the biblical texts about brothers and sisters referring to cousins or wider family. Great. Now, um, meaning then that Mary remains a virgin. Now, let's just keep, well, I'll just run through these, and then he has this great line at, at the end here, or I wrote, but it's based on what he said. Um, now, the Immaculate Conception. This is very confusing, because Luther doesn't really extensively talk about this, and he does, it's very early, and then he just has any, he doesn't say anything else about it. So it's not like he says, this is the doctrine, Immaculate Conception, I agree with this, No. He, he talks about how if Jesus is sinless, how, how does he take his flesh from Mary? How does that work? And then he remains sinless. So there are there is these two kind of prevailing perspectives in, in the Middle Ages. One is Mary was born sinless. And then one, Mary was purified of her sin by the power of the Holy Spirit in light of Christ's sacrifice. The second one is most likely what Luther believed. Um, that's also, too, like what like Thomas Aquinas believed. And that in order for Jesus to be sinless, he, his, the womb of Mary had to be purified. Okay. Now, that's kind of a logical understanding, right? So... You know, so if you're going to put your clean laundry in the toilet, that's probably going to make the laundry dirty. So maybe we should have a clean basket to put the laundry in. Now, what Luther does is he says the Holy Spirit still have a toilet, but purifies the toilet to be completely clean, and then puts the clean laundry in. Now, there's other Christians who say once Jesus is put into the womb, it works the other way. He purifies it as he's put into the womb. So again, there's a variety of views on this. You probably didn't know that. Okay. Now, because uh, there is no specific scriptural proof, Luther will say, hey, if they're not in scripture, you know, then you don't have to believe. You can believe all these if you want. But... Don't make other people believe one or, or the other. 
And I think that's a very healthy thing because once you learn kind of the argument of this, you're like, okay, they're not crazy and they're just trying to get it right. Now again, I'm not talking about today Roman Catholics because they've already decided, right? And that's really kind of the bummer of like 1951 and then, and then the 19th century with the assumption is that now you can't really talk about it anymore. So the Immaculate Conception in 1951, Mary was born sinless. So, so she, they actually took one of the sides of those arguments and said that's it. Okay, now, yeah, so anyways, so that's, that's outside the bounds of this, this discussion. I'm just saying what Luther, Luther regarded in Mary, uh, because this is important then as we, as we kind of think about what Greifenberg says. This is all kind of getting back to the, to the Greifenberg text. Um, is that um, the Roman Catholic Church has said, this is what you have to believe. Okay, well, that's where we say, no, you don't. You do not have to. All right, well, anyway, so the whole point of this whole discussion here in, in terms of Mary is like, whoa, Luther's really kind of old-fashioned here. Um, but he really, he's, he's so focused on Scripture alone that he understands that if there's not a scripture, specific Scripture, then you can't make someone believe this. However, you can say, um, yeah, this, this can be believed. So there is somewhat of a, a kind of a, um, it's not monolithic, the beliefs about Mary. And that's important for us now because I think most of us have been taught one thing about Mary, whether it's super like on one end of the spectrum or the other end of the spectrum. I mean, I was taught as a kid, there's nothing good about Mary besides Christmas. That's about it. So, you know, it's funny until I get into college, Wheaton College, and I actually have to read the Bible. Like, I'm like, oh, well, Mary pops up like in several places, and these are really important places in the Bible, and well, maybe that's something to make note of. Okay. So, um, all right, great. Donna. Uh, I just wondered how Luther translates Matthew 125. You know, it says until. That's right, yes. That's, yeah, you know, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I do, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a great question. So the, the reference is to um, Joseph and I forgot the exact phrasing. That's in the ESV. Yeah, now the thing is, is that um, I believe what Luther says about this, and I have to, I have to go check on it, is that he, he, he understands this as a, uh, not in the, like kind of the past tense, but it is an open-ending relationship. Because there's also a prevailing view about Joseph, that Joseph also entered into the relationship, n not as a virgin, but um, committed to, to remaining, having that marriage be, be chased, basically. And I think Greifenberg makes reference to that in the reading. You're not implying afterwards, though. Yes. Semper Virgo means ever virgin. But I thought Jesus had brothers. Okay, what I said earlier is that Luther understands that as being cousins. Because the, the Greek text, that word is used in a variety of different ways. One is, like my brother Hans and my brother Justin. Other times it's used as kind of family. My brothers as being my wider family. But that's not proven. That's just what he thought or perceived. Right, like I, I think I've been saying this the whole time. Hopefully I've been saying this. Have you gotten that? Okay, everybody, is that, so Luther says that this is, this is what Luther believes. But he says since it's not in scripture, you do not have to believe it. But it can be believed because there are, again, arguments to say, you could. So like, for instance, the brethren reference. And he actually has this. He actually discusses this because there were people trying to defame him 
by saying that Jesus was born of Joseph and Mary. That's what, that, people were saying that of Luther, and there is a writing of his from, I believe, 1528, Jesus was born a Jew. And he goes in there and vehemently defends the virgin birth, and then also makes reference to her remaining a virgin. So, um, yeah, so Luther believes that. I'm not saying you have to. Again, I mean, I, I, frankly, I agree with Luther. This is not a big deal. Yeah. Um, I think we make it into a big deal. One is, I mean, obviously, um, Roman Catholicism has made it a big deal. And has made, again, has made that a belief that you must believe in. Where Luther says, that's not, this is not, Mary's virginity serves a greater purpose. Serves Jesus. So, let's focus on Jesus. So what he, that's basically what he says. But if you say to Luther, well, did Mary remain a virgin after Jesus was born? You would say, oh, well, yeah. And then would you say, well, am I sinning if I don't believe it? And you'd be like, no. Can we get back to Jesus, please? Yes, that's what he would say. The Catholic Church teaches that. Yeah, it's part of their dogma. Yeah. But, Since 1951? No, that was the Immaculate Conception. So there's two different things. Immaculate conception, that means her sinlessness. And then the Semper Virgo, ever virgin. She just remained a virgin. Postpartum. What? But was the Semper Virgo from, like, forever? Or? Yeah, that's part of the church councils. And this is one of the things is that um, in the small card articles, which is another document of our beliefs, doesn't explicitly say it, but it, it basically makes reference to Jesus or uh, to Mary as being virgin um, pre, no, propartum and postpartum. I think it's the Latin pro or pre. I, I don't know which. I, I get the English mixed up because <laughs> we would say pre, right? Um, and postpartum. Postpartum is a Latin phrase, by the way. Yeah. Okay, well, anyways, let's see, look at falling into the trap. We're talking about Mary too much. I say this because I want us to really, like, not think that Greifenberg is, oh, she's heavily influenced by those Roman Catholics. She's not. She's a very Lutheran woman who's just being a Lutheran. Um, and, and what I show these pictures from Nuremberg is because, remember, way back when, is that Greifenberg lived in a Catholic land and could not go to church. But there was two places where she would go to church. Bratislava, Slovakia. I can't remember. The, that's, the, that's the current name of it. I don't remember. I can't remember the old name of it. Um, what's it? Breslau. How do you spell it? B-E-B-R-E? Yeah, okay. B-E-R-E-S-L-A-U. Yeah, okay. And um, or then Nuremberg. So the images we see here are probably the ones that she was around. So she actually then, you know, is worshiping, receiving Holy Communion in these churches, and Mary's just kind of around all the time. So this is an unusual spot where Mary wasn't this, she, was, she in our minds, unique to us, seems to be a bigger deal than what we would associate with. But in those times, it was she was she's just part of the landscape. Yeah, Julie. This church is called Frauenkirche. Does that mean like lady? Like yeah, that's right. Yep, that's exactly. Is that why they had all these names? That's originally. Yep, that's originally why. Yeah. So, like for instance, uh, there's a lot of German uh, Lutheran churches named St. Mary's. Um, one of the most famous churches in Germany where Johann Sebastian Bach played. Does anyone know what that name is? Frauenkirche. Well, it's in Dresden. It's, yeah. So, again, that is just testimony to the fact that it, wasn't, it didn't have to be eradicated from the life of the church. or It just had to be reformed, put into the right perspective, in line with Jesus. So, um, that's why in Wittenberg, 
St. Mary's. It's St. Mary's Church. They never changed it. They didn't feel any need to. Um, yeah, there's a lot of old churches. And again, if you base this premise on Mary being the chief example of faith, you'd be like, oh, well, of course I'm going to name a church after Mary. Yeah. But is, it, is it not nowadays that's the influence of the, of the Pope? Uh, well, yeah, that's why Luther would say you, we better get on reforming it. Yeah, not eradicating it. Yeah, it, it wasn't, things, Calvinists eradicated things, unfortunately, during this period. All right. Um, in fact, oh, well, here, just real quick, just to show you that there was actually, like, debate amongst the Lutherans is on, it's kind of the third page here, there is a, so, in World War II, the Frauen Kirche stained glass was destroyed. Okay, so... But they actually have a picture of the original design of the stained glass. This is post... Oh, I don't know if I put the date on there. In the 1520s. And this... Ugh, these I don't like this one especially. I don't know if you can tell. It's Mary... And who's missing in the picture? Yeah, that's not good. So she's covering people under her mantle. Yeah, actually, though, there's a lot of Lutheran churches, though, that made the same image, and they took, Je- they took Mary out and put Jesus in. And so there's, like, a picture of Jesus with, like, a cape, and he's, yeah. Anyways, that one, that one was, uh, that one is really kind of surprising. <laughs> but there's a story behind this. Guess, it's kind of, okay, um, guess what kind of person... Do you think the church raised money for this? One person raised money for that. So, you know, it's the old church politics. The guy with the deep, deep pockets sometimes gets what he wants. Now, I'm saying that in jest because there's really no record of that, but all they know about the, the patron who did that was a guy who wanted to make sure that the money kept flowing between Nuremberg and the rest of the Holy Roman Empire. I probably tainted your looks of that, but um, anyways, I shouldn't say that. That's not actually... Well, I think there's a good argument you could say that, but there's no written record of that. All right, now, anyway, so that way, but uh, there's a variety of other cities that kept these images. Um, yeah. Uh, Lupac and even Berlin. Um, oh, yeah. The uh, open altarpiece on the one side uh, is from Lupac. Lupec. But anyways, even in Berlin, but it wasn't until the Calvinists took over Berlin that a lot of the images were destroyed. Anyways, the whole point is that Mary was just part of the normal life of the church. Um, Yeah. So, it's actually part of our church, too, because we also celebrate the Annunciation, uh, Purification. I mean... These are just, they're in our hymnals. And um, this last September, I just, I wanted to celebrate the Nativity of St. Mary, which was in our hymnals and Bibles, even up to the early 20th century, even within the LCM Mass, in the German translations. Once it got into the English, it was was all just gone, like it got rid of. Um, But again, that's a non-scriptural, uh, Marian feast. So within Lutherans, L- Lutheranism, all the non-scriptural ones, some kept them, some didn't. But like the Annunciation, the Purification of Mary, um, uh, they were all just kept because they're in the Bible. So they kept them as a Marian feast. And you know, un- unbeknownst to a lot of LCMS Lutherans, you know, Advent's colors, a lot of people say, hey, why did we get the purple Purple vestments, why were the blue ones? Okay, well, I hate to break it to you, but blue is Mary's color. So going to purple actually is an older tradition. And it was very funny that a lot of the advocates who wanted the blue back, blue black, back, blue back, you know, also were the same ones that asked, why do we have a crucifix in here? It's kind of ironic, right? Because the crucifix is Lutheran, the blue is Roman Catholic, and they want everything. Yeah. So, again, it's really based on our own tradition and really asking ourselves, hey, what we were, what, 
what we were taught and grown up in, is that the full story? It's probably not, because guess what? There's a lot to the story. We've got to keep learning. That's why we're here today. Okay. So I, I raised all these things to really kind of demonstrate how Greifenberg is uh, utilizing Mary in this most positive sense. And she actually disagrees with Luther. I mean, she calls Mary a sinner. So, but, um, you know, she has an ode to Mary. She, when she praises Mary, it's primarily in reference to Christ. I wrote all these quotes down, but um, some of the ones that I think are, um, I'm, I'm, I'm like, wow, this is great, is the, I, um, I really got to put page numbers on these. Unfortunately, it wasn't part of your reading. Pastor, on page 245, she mentions that Jesus entered into a sinless womb. I mean, a sinful womb. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Now, I, hopefully I put that in. Oh, no, you know what? That's right. So I, I only put the first one on page 230. Um, she's talking about Mary. For just as his purest human nature was conceived and prepared in a most holy fashion without sin within me, sinner. She labels herself a sinner. Thus shall his righteousness be fully received through faith in those poor sinners. So, yeah, I mean, so that's great. See, this is a great example of how there is this kind of this plethora of ideas. And, um, you know, don't, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't, like, you know, condemn people. There's other things that can be believed. Yeah, Donna. Uh, I just like the thought that uh, if the Holy Spirit could... Uh, conceive and marry a child, he certainly could have purified her. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, and you should. That's a great idea. Fantastic. Um, but, but the most important thing is to realize is that um, that confession is about Jesus. I mean, this is the thing. Is that And, and uh, the Siberians were really helpful for me in this many years ago when I first became a pastor. Bishop Litkin just said to me one time, the Marian holidays are Christ's holidays. Everything you say about Mary is about Jesus. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, right. That's, that's just a guiding principle. So whatever you say about Mary, if it detracts and takes focus off of Jesus, you've got to be suspect. So that's the whole point about, is that if you praise Mary for her merit, or who, who she is, Okay, you can do that, but who she is is based on grace and mercy. And the more you dwell upon that, the more you actually, you know, are enriched by it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the other thing, though, too, about Mary and Greifenberg's meditations are her motherhood and her virginity and how whether you had children or not, Mary is a great example for all women to dwell upon because of, I mean, as, as the angel Gabriel says, uh, all things are possible with God. So it really, really then puts the woman's life into a very unique position because I think there's a lot of things that people say women can't do, but the words of Gabriel and Jesus say, all things are possible with God, right? So, um, and this is important for us even in the church because we sometimes get things kind of all goofed up. And we talked about this before, and we'll probably bring it up again a little bit later, like in January or February, I don't know when, maybe next year or two years, I don't know, um, on how when God gives the man, the, the mandate, not man is now no longer referenced gender, but the, the job to both male and female, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to, to, to subdue the earth, have dominion, gives it to both. And how that means then women are participating in that, whether it be music, art, science, whatever.
Um, unfortunately, within the Reformation, and this is why Greifenberg's is really helpful for us, is that Luther's understanding of Mary really regulates a woman's place only in the home. Now, that's, it's hard for us to kind of get that now because um, back in those days, women only had two options, the convent or the home. So, you know, it wasn't like, hey, we have a really bright young lady who's really into science and has now become a scientist. Well, there are not many scientists that even existed back then. So, you know, it's, so it's kind of hard to translate or apply some of his words in our day. But that loss of that kind of avenue in life, because if, if a woman was interested in languages or theology, kind of speaking with Christian ones, or even though arts and science even, the only place they could ever study that was in the convent. So women had to make that choice. It's probably not a fair choice. So one of the great things about the Reformation is that Luther said, wait, you know, motherhood is actually a really wonderful thing and we should celebrate that. Um, but unfortunately then it just eradicated this other avenue in life. But we see in Greifenberg and then in our meditations of Mary is you, you kind of have this unique person. She was married. She wasn't a mother though, but she was married. And because of her station in life, she was able to study science, languages, art, poetry. So I think, I think she's a really, yeah, really, really great person to, to learn about for today's woman. And then how, what she says about Mary, though, just kind of puts everything in perspective for her as a woman. Um, yeah, Krista. I only want to say, you know, um, uh, Katharina von Bora, um, She's another one, yeah. Yeah, she, uh, you know, and I think there was an opportunity for, for women in the, in the cloister. Right. She, she could do um, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. She uh, later on showed, no? Right. And to really to sustain his, uh, her family. Oh, man, yeah. Uh, and so that's another great thing. So she, so this is a whole other aspect of things, is Luther's wife. So, you know, so when you hear she ran the home, again, you're putting your modern kind of construction on what that means. When she ran the home, I mean, it was, an, it was a, like a bed and breakfast. I mean, it was a business. Yeah, you had, you had students living there. And not just students, though, travelers. Yeah. I mean, people coming in all the time. But then also, too, she ran, uh, you know, she, she made, famously made beer and, you know, so. Yeah, exactly. So she, it was like a, you know, agricultural business. Yeah. So anyways, so again, these are things that I think are really important for us to meditate upon and then think about like how, whoa, wait a second, why, why is, was this not more common? And then ask ourselves, is it because of what happened back then? Or is it because of what happened afterwards? Is it because of our own concern, current situation in life? And then say, oh, wait a second, maybe we can learn something and then apply it. Okay, now the whole thing though, and we're, we're going to talk about this next week, but it should be on your last page, Luther and Joy. Um, hang on to this because well because it's pertinent to Advent and Christmas joy to the world Kathy um, the, the Eskimos have like 50 words to describe snow right because in English we're just like it's snow snow right and so we modify it we say it's early snow, it's late snow, it's heavy snow. Yeah, right. Sleety snow, but it's always pretty much snow, mm -hmm. unless it becomes ice. But so what's frustrating to me reading my English translations is that with words like fear and love and brothers.
Right. It's like, yeah, there's no modification to say, well, this in this case it means brotherly love. In this case it means it's agape. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yep. It's always just love, and you're all, I'm reading it when I'm first. Right. The Bible thing, I'm love this, love that. Well, it meant love. It meant something different. So why can't the people doing this modify the word? It just takes too long. Fill, oh, saints preserve it. <laughs> no, no, you should ask Nancy. Nancy will be able to answer that question better than me. Others, if it means like your cousins and your greater family, say relatives. If it means your act, but that's actually so. That's the thing, though, is that's this weird thing is that it's that's technically not the word, but it's used in certain ways. So that that's kind of the flip side of things. Speaking of though, uh, the Hail Mary, full of grace, Luther. Luther, of course, says, you know, Gabriel spoke Hebrew to her. So it, so you know, your Greek New Testament's probably not even trustworthy. Teasing, I'm totally joking. <laughs> but, no, no, no. Actually, that, this is this is actually very important for us because you need you you can trust your English translations. However, don't assume you know everything about the English language. Let's put it that way, and that's why we spend time learning. Because, um, well, this is also very important for us to know is that it's not just reading the Bible. The Bible is meant to be discussed. Yeah. So, to a certain extent, it's good that it's not all laid out because you might think you know everything then. You know? Well, I am a flipping control freak, so yeah. every little detail, I, I want to understand every little detail. I'm always, I'm always, every time I go back to the Bible, I'm always like, man, this is, this is weird. It's bad. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I should just concentrate on Jesus, love, God. <laughs> well, I no, I, I, I would I mean that's that's you have enough to you have enough to learn in your baptism, but it is you know there's always more, yeah. But um, but again, this is really important for us too about our church history. Is that our current experience does not define church history, and so always learning more about even our church life together is important because you realize there's a lot of things that. I don't like. But then there's also things you're like, oh, wow, I wish, why don't we do that anymore? Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of great things, and that is kind of the fun thing about what we're doing now, is that we, we learn things we didn't know, we learn things that we don't like, we learn things that enliven us, you know, or affirm what we kind of already know. I mean, it's, it's important for us to kind of stick with it and keep growing. Um, so if you, uh, if you have your packet, um, the sections on joy, and this is, I mean, this is really great stuff, by the way, because I might stick a little bit more in there. I just have just a bunch of bullet points, but uh, Grafenberg has said a lot about like bliss, right? And like, oh, you know, she's just enraptured all the time. It's based on joy. Those are connected. And she actually mimics Luther in his writings. Luther, when he says, you know, there's joy, he means full body, sensory, um, and then also the notion of pleasure. And... But he also says it's something that doesn't just doesn't come like magically. So if we can kind of wrestle with that next week, I think that will make our Christmas so much better. Yeah. Music is the main one for Luther. Yeah. Holy smokes! Yeah, absolutely. So in fact, this entire my entire thought on joy comes from a book about music because, um, yeah, well, okay, let's just, Donna. If you have, uh, if you have a radio, 91.9 FM. <laughs> oh, Donna's favorite, yes, Donna and I, we've talked about this, 91. Christian radio. 
Great hymns. Family Radio, or you can go on your and, and check out familyradio.org. Yep. It has Christmas music all the time. Yeah, now the, um, uh, well, okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.